0: Good morning, how's everybody? I am so excited that you're here. Uh, If you're new with us, welcome. Uh, Welcome to Kested. My name's Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're in a series right now called Dragons and Dandelions that has kind of taken on a life of its own. We've been talking for about the last month now about what it really means to, to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, to face the things in our lives that just won't seem to go away. Last week, we talked about dragons, and these big, sort of insurmountable, appearing a few times a year kind of situations and places we find ourselves. If you didn't hear that talk and you, you want to catch up, feel free, it's online. But this week we're going we're gonna to talk about dandelions. And this, this talk is really special. It's special because I think um, the Lord built it for a few people that are here today. I, I, I was excited to see a few different folks that came today and I thought, hey, this might be for you. And so what I want to do is pray that the Holy Spirit would do exactly that, that it wouldn't be Danny's words, it wouldn't be the place, it would really be just you and God connecting, asking those uh, honest, ugly, beautiful questions you're supposed to ask the Holy Spirit and that only He can answer. And my hope is that, uh, that today you find something that you're looking for. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for every person in this room. Thank you for their journey. Thank you for their story. Thank you that you have come to meet them that you have walked with them all this way and that, God, you are here today to make yourself even more known. I'm, uh, I'm just blown away, Lord, by the way that you, you are so present and so intimate and so connected when we are willing to just open ourselves up and be transparent and authentic about our struggles and even our disappointments in you. Lord, may we just walk into the room today really uh, willing to, to embrace something different than we have, Thank you for uh, the story you're telling with all the lives that sit here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to start off my dandelion talk today by telling you about a different talk that I gave a few years ago. I was a youth pastor in the Clark County area for about 10 years, so I had quite a large youth group, therefore I knew quite a lot of high schoolers, and yet I only ever did one baccalaureate, which is something that normally most youth pastors would do a few of, especially with a youth group the size of the one I was pastoring. But I only did one, and there's a fairly good reason why. I don't often get to speak to audiences of mixed uh, company, audiences that are that are not just students of mine, but friends that aren't really for church or God and all their friends and family. And I knew right away when I asked that I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to bring something more than just hey, you know, do well and here's five values and all that other stuff that I have seen it. And a few other baccalaureates. If you're a baccalaureate speaker, I'm not talking about you. Yes, I am. So this is what I did. This is what I did. I walked on stage. They said, introducing Pastor Danny Clinton. He's a pastor here in town. I walked out. This was a big class. Lots of folks. Well over 1,000 people there. And I said, hi, guys. I'm really excited to be here. I've prayed a lot about what I wanted to share with you. And what I want to really uh, pour over you today is this statement. (laughs) And then I just sat there tension is legit, right? And I did, I just sat there. Like, like I was bringing something to them, you know, profound, and they should know about it. And after a while, I heard somebody be like, oh my God. And the lady who invited me put her hands in her head, and she was like, I knew he was going to do this. He never just follows the rules. He always does whatever he wants to do. All my students were like, here we go, here we go, right? And it was just this cool moment of like, Uh, Of this, of this, this idea, right? And I said, "Here's what I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you God does want to ruin your life. He absolutely does, 100%. This isn't a trick statement. And I'm telling you here today, God wants to ruin your life. That's not what I'm going to preach, but the statement and the tension you feel is what we're going to lean into in just a moment." I told them that as a lover of exotic cars, I have been privileged because of this gift of a mouth that God gave me to talk myself into the driver's seats of cars I should not have driven. I once drove a man's Porsche from a gas station, conversation, and then ended up driving it around town for a half hour because I told him, I've never driven a Porsche. I lied. But it was a model I hadn't driven, so I kind of didn't lie. I've driven all kinds of different cars, all kinds of different ones, and eventually this gentleman offered, because I had shared that somewhere, he offered to let me drive a Lamborghini Diablo Roadster. And I said, okay. I played it very cool, very cool, way too cool. I said, no problem, I'd love to. So he took me for a drive, we cruised around town, he went the speed limit the entire time, which disgusted me, <laughs> right, that's, 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 just, that's just amazing. And then I said, well, do, would, you, would, you mind, would you mind if I drove? And he said, ugh, and I said, listen, listen. <laughs> I said, I am never gonna get the opportunity to drive another car like this this is my one shot, and I would like for you to respect that. <laughs> so he pulled over to this, behind this place, and he, like, gave me lots and lots of, like, hows and what's and when's, and I got in the seat of this Lamborghini Diablo Roadster, and he said, now, you have to understand, this isn't my car. This is what I do for a living, and this car's on loan to me while the owner's out of town, and I'm, I'm, I'm letting you borrow a car that I've borrowed, and it's worth $315,000, And I said, listen, listen, this is the only chance that I'm ever going to get to drive a car like that. And I suggest you respect that. And then I blew that thing up for the next four or five miles. Uh, And here's the idea. That car and that experience has ruined for me every other fast car experience I've ever had. I've gotten people's fast cars. Oh, you like cars? You should drive in my this. You should drive in my that. And I try to be excited, and I'm like, this is awesome. Yay. Mm. (laughs) On the outside, I'm like, woo. On the inside, I'm like, I wonder what's for dinner. (laughs) Because this Lamborghini ruined for me what fast was. Now, here's the principle. God and his love for you will ruin for you what you thought love was. It will wreck you. If you experience him and his purpose and his plans in your life, no school, no degree, no friend circle, no social network, nothing will bring purpose and value and, and pure sub, substance to your life like God will. And the beautiful thing about a relationship like that is that it will ruin all other relationships in comparison. Crowd went wild. Parents were still upset. Lady that brought me in was still upset. I never got invited back. Whatever. Whatever. Story's awesome. <laughs> Today I want to give you a different statement in regards to the dandelions in your life, and this is it. We serve a savagely generous God. We serve a savagely generous God. This is important, let's remember it. And then we're gonna dive into the dandelions of our lives. And I think you're gonna see why this is critical to you being able to overcome some of these things. Inside all of our stories, we have these repeating painful themes. Every person here has it. Every single person here has a few things that they go back to, a few things that they continue to live out in rhythm. So for today's talk, dandelions are defined as quietly reoccurring destructive behaviors. Quietly reoccurring destructive behavior. So if the dragons are the big things in your life, they're the career changes, they're the sickness, they're the massive breakup, they're these things that really forever kind of tilt you in a new direction, the dandelions are the things in your life that you go to when those dragons appear in order to, to, to calm yourself, in order to kind of find uh, that reoccurrence of uh, peace that you're missing when those dragons come. Dandelions because they're so quietly and reoccurring, uh, really are the things that we end up planting ourselves. In reality, so many of our dandelions come out of our own planting. They come out of our own decision-making. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is teaching us something very important about sin and therefore the dandelions in our lives that continue to reoccur. It's teaching us this reality that we've taught here a lot at Kesed, that all sin is embryonic. That all sin is embryonic. That because of the fall, that because the world isn't as it should be, the world was created in harmony. It doesn't take me but about three or four questions with just about anyone, even people totally against God, to get them to admit that the world is out of harmony, that the world is a cacophony, the opposite of harmony, and that it shouldn't be this way. My argument is that it's sin, genetically, from Adam and Eve all the way down through, that has thrown the world off it's a center and that what Jesus came to do is put the world back right. And that us working in relationship with him is us taking our lives of cacophony and working back towards harmony. You know this. Now what you don't realize or what most people don't realize about sin that's embryonic is that that means that when people are arguing with you, especially as Christians, if I need somebody to buy me a soapbox because I'm going to start standing on one every once in a while when I have an issue like this, this is not what today's topic is about, but I need you to stop telling people you're not born that way. When people tell you with their issues, with their concerns, with the things they wrestle with, well, I'm born that way, and you as a Christian go, you're not born that way. Something happened to you. You are ignorant and unbiblical because the Bible says that sin is embryonic. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. I can hand you five verses that talk about how uh, I was in my mother's womb and how I had sin even then and how I was broken even then and this idea that we aren't sinful. Spend time with a two-year-old and then come at me with that argument. Are you serious? Most selfish creature on the planet is a two-year-old. I watched one swagger in here, right? In his little skeleton costume, no shoes on, made no eye contact with anybody. It's not even Halloween and we wear shoes at church, bro. He didn't care at all. He just walked right by me, going to kids. They're, they're messed up. They're little versions of us. Right? <laughs> Nobody just wears their skeleton onesie to church with no shoes. You just don't get to do that. Apparently, he does whatever he wants. This concept is beautiful, though, because you can have incredible conversations with people when you can give them the leeway that we're all born sinful and that. People are born broken, meaning when someone's like, well, stop talking to me about my lifestyle or my choice or my whatever. I was born that way. You're not like, no, no. You're like, yeah, yeah, I agree. So what? I was born with this mouth, and it is my responsibility to not destroy, turn upside down, and inside out every single person I talk to. I don't get to say, well, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I was born this way, and I usually use it for good. We need to understand that God is teaching us that we are a broken people living in a broken world, and that's why he came. When you minimize the brokenness and you, and you only add it to trauma or some other thing that you believe happened to people to get them to turn out so different than you, you minimize just how broken the world is, therefore minimizing the incredible need for God to come. Make brokenness big and sit in the conversation. And you know what's the doorway? This, I'm not even supposed to be preaching about this right now. I need a soapbox so I can set it off to remind myself, you know, what, you know what's the doorway to having a broken conversation with somebody? Your brokenness. Your reality. I wrestle with this stuff so much and it's almost always gonna start in dandelion conversations. People are not gonna talk to you about their dragons, but they will talk to you about their reoccurring destructive behavior if you'll start by talking about yours. Soapbox out. Here's what this means about sin though. Important for all of us. What this means is, and what it's telling us is that all sin is temporarily soothing because it's genetic, right? It's built into us. It's like that child. Sin is temporarily soothing, which is why we return to it. And the sinfully soothing behavior in different lives plays out differently. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, and this is just a small example. Okay, this is not a comprehensive list, so stop all you biblical buffs in the room trying to tell me those are the great many sins. There's many more sins than this, but these are the ones specifically that God highlights because they are rooted in so many other behaviors. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Look at the first one, haughty eyes. That little kid in the onesie, he's out right away, (laughs) right away, and so am I, and so are you. I mean, are you, are you, do you really think you have enough self-discipline and spiritual control that you don't have haughty eyes when something goes well for you and bad for an enemy? Come on, God says he hates that. It's embryonic. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, which by the way, uh, that idea of feet that make haste to run to evil could also be fingers that make type to run to evil. Just for those of you in the room who needed that. You're like, I have never ran to hurt somebody in my life. I have hit refresh a lot though, waiting for them to fall on their face so I could make a perfect comment I saved the night before. Hmm. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among his brothers. This is a very important principle to understand because it's these painful and reoccurring themes or dandelions, especially if well-watered, that continue to pop up throughout our lives. And oftentimes, it's us who's sowing them. It's us who's pouring them into our story. And then suddenly, one day, And I'll put this quote on the screen. If we are not aware, it's these quiet habits that can become the most common flowers and therefore greatest fragrance of our lives. They affect how you think. They affect how you have your perspectives. They affect how you smell the world. And you become someone known as deeply bitter or church hurt or wounded. You become someone that's always angry. Someone that's that's afraid of conflict, someone that, that is rigid, someone that is, is, is too emotionally needy. These things in your life, without truly facing why they exist in the first place, can become the fragrance of your life. And it all starts with realizing, first off, we all have them, and we all plant them. They can eventually capture us in cycles of addiction and pacification, that soothing behavior becomes the actual thing that we live for. Proverbs 26, 11 says, these are like those people that are like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I wanted today really badly to hand everybody those doggy vomit bags they give you on a plane as you leave, but they didn't, they didn't think that would be appropriate, and I'm working on that kind of thing in my heart right now. <laughs> but spiritually and emotionally, I'm handing them to you today. Danny made me leave with this emotional vomit bag today at church. What kind of church do I attend? We become people who regularly choose what's easy rather than what's good. And it's 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 everywhere. It's everywhere. It's not that hard to see people who are living out these kinds of patterns. They're not that hard to recognize because there's really only two big reasons, two big looping, repeating reasons why people choose to continue to live this way. The first one is simple. It's pride. We think we are too valuable. We think the world revolves around us and our perspectives, our problems, our dandelions are the only thing anyone else should smell because they're, they're everywhere. are everywhere. How do you not see what I see? How do you not understand what I understand? I gave the illustration a while back of people not realizing the little yellow flowers and the white wishes were the same flower. And people who understood that looked just for a second down on people who didn't. Like, how could you not know that? Haughty eyes, knotty neck, hands that run to share your silliness. But then, if you step back and realize all of us grew up in different homes with different stories, all of us have different understandings of what a father and a mother and and business and money and God and church and pastor and school and education and I can go on and on and on are. We all approach life differently. And we think our version is the version. We think our version is the way. We think our version is how everyone else should live. And we can't engage through our brokenness in anyone else's version. And so we just sit across the table, prideful, usually from another broken, prideful person, both of us hurting about the same thing in a different way. And the relationship falls apart. And we bring it up in prayer group and ask God, please, Lord, help so-and-so in their ignorance. And if they're in a small group, they're praying for you the same exact thing. And God's like, oh my, why did I make that promise about never bringing the flood back? I don't understand. It just should, just start again, start again. Proverbs 29.1 says about these people, whoever stubbornly refuses to accept criticism will suddenly be destroyed beyond recovery. Pride is a serious thing. God takes it serious because God is the one who's at the center of the universe. God is the one who makes all things into harmony. He is the maestro. He is the one that holds, you know, the baton. He is the one that says when we start, click, click, click. And when you go, nah, I'm going to start over here, do my own thing, you're still playing your life, but you're not playing it with everybody else because you're not playing it with the one who made the universe, and so you feel tired and angsty and exhausted because you're prideful. I wrestle with this. I wrestle with this more than I wrestle with shame. I walk into a room and oftentimes I'm measuring just how vulnerable people are and based on how vulnerable they are is how much I'll respect them. You know how broken that is? Because I don't, in my story vulnerability is, is everything. So I want you to be vulnerable and if you are vulnerable and I'm vulnerable then we are in. But if I'm vulnerable and you're like, oh I don't wrestle with that, I'm just waiting now to destroy that argument oh, you don't wrestle with that. Hmm, it's really weird. Because I saw you parked your car at the very front and then looked at it three times as you walked back in the restaurant, yet you say you don't wrestle with any kind of pride? Like, I didn't park at the very front. No one else parked at the very front. And then they're like, well, I might wrestle with a little pride. And then I'm like, oh, I mean, I'm not here to talk. I'm not here to talk about that. Like, I don't want to, and then I move on, but I just want to make sure you're destroyed enough that you know and I know that I destroyed you. (laughs) This is a problem for me. This is one of my areas. And and here's the worst part, it's tied into my story so that usually I'm proud of the things that bring God glory, right? I'm proud of my vulnerability. I'm proud that we're in a church built on a brand. I'm proud that we were set up and teared down for nine years and God just gave us a building. I'm super proud of that. I'm like, we just waited and God just blessed. Why don't all the churches just wait and God bless? Oh, wait a second, because not all the churches are the same, Danny. I hear the floodwater's water's coming. It's gonna wash me away. There's another group of people though. And for you, it's not pride so much as it's shame. We don't think we're valuable enough. We've made mistakes. We've made choices. we found ourselves in this place in our life where we're just too embarrassed to be vulnerable, and it's really not that we don't want to have connection or relationship. It's not that we don't want to share our story. It's that we don't want to share our story in such a way that, that it makes us smaller than we already feel. David is a man we know and trust who wrote scripture about the greatness of God. But even David, when he failed, when he made mistakes, felt this word shame. Psalm 51, 9 through 11, his first phrase is Hide your face from my sins. <laughs> Don't look at me, God, and blot out all my iniquities. God, you create a clean clean heart in me because I've obviously dirtied it up. Oh God, and you renew a right spirit within me for I've obviously broken it. And God, whatever you do, cast me not away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's afraid that the God of the universe will leave him. His shame is so deep and so rich and so big and so overwhelming that in this verse at this time, it's even bigger than God. You live in this life and so you're not really you, and it's so hard to not really be you. It's like when you wear too tight a shirt, and you don't want your gut to poke out, so you're just constantly breathing in everywhere you go. Anybody know what that's like? I saw so many men in the room are like, he just became my pastor, right? Right then, right? And you're just trying to just hold it in, and then you get home, and you're like oh, uh, right, and you just, like, everything comes off, and you're like, oh, my gosh. This is what shame feels like for a lot of us, because we walk around like, oh, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm fine. My family's good. And really inside, you're like, I am not doing well. I am, I am over, I am, I am tight and in t- tension and exhausted because I feel ashamed of these things that I've done and this world that I've created. Have you ever noticed anyone's life fall apart right in front of you. Have you ever watched such a thing? Have you ever noticed how a person's life, from my experience, always starts with them living from one of these two places, pride and shame? Every time. Every single time when a person's life starts to really truly unravel, it's one of these two places that they will not let go of. Either the pride that they made the mistakes or the shame that they made the mistakes. Pride and shame are two things that we must, as a church body and as a community, be willing to recognize inside of our story. So, personal question. Which place in your life are you living out a destructive theme right now? If your answer is I'm not living out any destructive themes, then the answer is pride. <laughs> if your answer is everywhere in my life, then the answer is shame. Shame. There are always areas in our lives, areas in my life, that both of these come to effect. But that would be an important thing to write down and maybe ponder this week. Which place in my life am I living out of destructive behavior? Where in my life have I been planting dandelions? Which, again, what are those quietly reoccurring destructive behaviors? Where am I planting those seeds? Where are those things coming from? The next question I think is rather obvious, and that is, so what does a fallen apart life have once in a place like this? All covered in sin and slop, all mucked up. What is a life? What do you do? Here you are. Here you are. And the more you discover, the more you see. And the more you see, the more you discover. You don't know what to do about it, so what do you do? There's a young man in the Bible. He's famous for being a prodigal. We're not going to preach about him, but I will share with you his story of mud and muck at least, because there did come a point where he took all of the good things from his family that he thought was important, the money, the reputation, the security, and he left all of the other things that weren't important, and then he spent all those things feeding and soothing this life he thought he wanted to live, and eventually he came to a place where he had lost himself in this world. It's a beautiful physical picture of an emotional place, and he's feeding these pigs, and he's eating from their slop, and he finally, it says, comes to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, my friends, the answer is clear. What does a fallen apart life have once in a place like this? The answer is clear, and I'll put it up. The only hope for a life in this place is to return to the savage generosity of the Father. Is to go home, mud and all. Is to trust that he will meet you, that he will greet you, that he will love you as you are, and that... You may even realize one day he was there right in that slop with you. Jesus is teaching about God's generous love and he's Teaching it in Luke 15, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, 43 through 45, and this is what he says. He said, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And listen to this last line. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's savage generosity is illustrated here in his son and his reign that pours over and shines on both the wicked and the righteous because our God is savagely generous. Do you want to know the definition of this word savage? And it's quite beautiful. It simply means to a very great and severe degree, untamed, indomitable, strange, and undomesticated. <laughs> this is how God loves you strangely. This is how God loves you, untamed. This is how God loves you to a very great and severe degree. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And they're like, what? That's so weird. That's so, that's so, uh, that's so uh, severe. That's so difficult. And he's like, yes. We love each other that way because that's how God loves you because God pours his love and his son and his reign out over you whether you're wicked or righteous, whether you're just or unjust. This is what Jesus is using. This is, explains the answer to the great question, why do good things happen to bad people and vice versa? Because God is savagely generous because he is pursuing, because he loves and loves and loves are you seeing this are you experiencing this it's woven throughout almost every single core story in the bible think about abram god decides that the world has enough people that now a group of people can represent him so he goes to abram who will soon be abraham and he says abram i'm going to build a whole group of people out of you so that i can display my glorious love and my redemption into the world and you're going to be the people i choose and abram is like what why me and god there's no reason you're the one And Abram says, okay. And they travel to a far off land. And then God says, Abram, we're going to make a covenant. And at this point in the story, Abram knows what that means. Because at this point in this story, the cultural kind of covenant everybody made was the same. If two parties met, two parties of power, two representations of two groups, and they wanted to make a covenant of peace, they would do the same thing. They would bring multiple animals together. They would dig a trench between them. Then they would take the animals and cut them in half. They would tilt the animals and drain the blood into the trench, and then they together would walk through the trench of blood, proclaiming to the world that was watching them and to everyone else, if we break this covenant, so be it to us what has happened to these animals. So God says to Abram, you're my man, follow me. Abram says, okay. God says, do this, do this. Abram says, okay. God says, Abram, it's time for us to make a covenant. And Abram says, what? (laughs) A what? what? We're going to make a covenant, you and me, man. And Abram says, okay. And he goes and gets the animals. And he kills them. And he cuts them in half. And he digs a trench. And then he's filled with dread. Let's read about it. Verse 7, chapter 15 of Genesis. It's on the screen. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit. And he said to him, "'I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans "'to give you this land to possess.' "'But he said,' this is Abram, "'O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it?' "'And he said to me, him, "'Bring me a heifer, three years old, "'a female goat, three years old, "'a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. "'And he brought him all of these, "'cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other.' But he did not cut the birds in half. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Because Abram knows what you and I have just been talking about, which is that I am not good enough, due to my pride and shame, to uphold any end of a covenant I make with God. And I don't want to get cut in half. (laughs) Like, I like my whole self. And yet, God, who brought me here, asked me to make this covenant. So I'm digging the, the trench, and I'm cutting these animals right after I've killed them, thinking, this is me tomorrow, man. I'll break this by breakfast. I mean, this is, this is so not fair. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, just let it soak in as the blood pours and the trench fills. And Abraham waits for God to show up, and he gets tired, and he gets stressed. You know that stress and tired combo where you're like, I've, this is, what have I done to my life? And then it says God shows up. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now if you weren't careful, you would just skip right over the reality that it says only God passed through. It says it left Abram where he was. See, God knows what Abram was afraid of. God knows that he is the one making this savagely generous covenant with no conditions. I said earlier to you that your undealt with dandelions will become the greatest fragrance of your life. And that eventually you could be captured by them. This is exactly what God is helping Abram avoid. Captivity from a broken covenant. And so while he sleeps, God symbolically passes through proclaiming to Abram, I am so savagely generous that I will put the blood of these animals upon me and proclaim so be it to me if I break my covenant of generosity and love with you but you don't have to make the same covenant back because you can't because you're too prideful because you're too shame-filled and so God walks through exactly what Jesus will soon be walking through. Jesus says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, listen to it, it's not you, it's not us, it's not them, it's him. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor The sacrificed life of Christ is the clearest example of just how far God's savage generosity has gone for you and for me. It is his blood. It is the cross of him that made the difference. And frankly, you must think a lot of your sin to think it can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. You must think a ton of your shame to think it can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Have you seen the savage generosity of my God? I mean, he is not messing around. Yes, the Bible does speak to my pride, saying whoever requests, refuses to accept criticism will suddenly be destroyed. But the Bible also says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, listen to all these things, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And guess what? That includes your pride. Your pride will not keep God from pursuing you. It never has. It's only been something the world has used to blind you to the closeness of the Lord, who, by the way, brought you here today to hear this message. This is what God is doing. He is unpacking your story and he is pointing out your dandelions and he is showing you them not so that you can do anything about it, so that he can do something about it. Depths, heights, angels, demons, nothing, no mistake you've made can keep you from God pursuing and offering his savagely generous love. And yes, God's word speaks to my shame. It caused me to ask him many times, God, hide your face from what I am and what I've done. But you know what else it says? It says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And great is his faithfulness. The one who makes one-sided covenants with people he knows will break them. God is not turned off by your shame. God is not turned off by your story. God's just waiting for you to realize He's been part of it since the beginning. He wants to redeem everything about you, and you are not hidden from His eyes. God's savage generosity is to a very great and severe degree, it is untamed, indomitable, and strange. And it is not domesticated or religious or churchy. It is savage. The best part of it is it's falling on all of you right now. It doesn't matter if you're a friend or foe of God, righteous or unrighteous, lost or found, like the sun that just went away and the rain that's coming it's gonna pour over your life (laughs) until there's just no way you can deny that your purpose belongs with him. My prayer for you this autumn as all that rain comes is that you remember the savage generosity of God with every single drop. As you watch it hit on your neighbors, people you don't know, strangers, the animals, the fields, the flowers. That you remember that the way God showers his creation with his life-giving sun and water is the same way he showers his creation you above all with his generosity and so turn to him Run to him, lean into him, fall to him, break upon him, scream at him, cuss at him, curse him. It makes no difference. He will still hold you tight, kicking and screaming, and he will squeeze you until you realize there is nothing more that you can do than melt into the purpose and the presence of the Lord, and your life will be forever changed. I'm going to ask everyone's heads to bow. If you have never leaned into this, God, before, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Lord, in this room right now, there are people who have been leaning away for so long, this might be the scariest thing they've ever done. I ask, God, that you would just whisper into their ear that you're waiting, that you're ready, that it is time. If you've never accepted the story of Christ into your life, I just pray you'd say right now, In your heart, God, it's me. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of searching. I want to be found. I recognize the cross of the covenant of Jesus. The blood that you walked through so that my sins could be forgiven. So that my story could be made new. Please be a part of my life heal my story. Please receive my song. For others in this room, Lord, they're awakening right now to big pieces of their world they've never really looked at before. God, I ask that there would be a depth of questioning equal to your depth of healing. That, God, no one would go so far as to feel alone were overburdened by the questions they're asking. That you would bring people around them, you would bring information around them. That you would bring through your Holy Spirit, a supernatural refreshment around them. That there would just be a sense, God, of your guidance as they dive into this world of becoming healthier, more harmonious, and whole people. And Lord, when that rain comes. May it be a blessing to us this entire fall season as we remember your generosity. May it quench us, may it clean us. May it touch our lives and fill our hearts as we praise you now.